welcome to our podcast, Diaspora Dialogues. I'm Sambhavi. And I'm Lakshmi. And in our first season, we are doing a deep dive into the country of Sri Lanka. In each of our episodes, we invite subject matter experts to help inform our conversation about the social, economic and political climate of the nation. This is the second half of our fourth episode, and we are speaking to, to Amiza Tigal, a human rights lawyer based in Colombo with a practice focused on challenging torture and domestic violence. She joins us for a conversation on the recent constitutional changes initiated by President Gotabaya and its implications for minority communities on the island. This conversation was recorded in November, and of course, there has been some shift in the political environment in Sri Lanka since. We hope you enjoy, and as always, if you find these conversations interesting or helpful, please share the word within your circles. Hi, Amiza. Hi. How are you going, Amiza? It's going okay. <laughs> it's, it's, great to, it's great to, you know, finally um, be able to um yeah have this conversation with you i mean we've had we've heard i've heard great things from rookie um so uh, amizo if you'd like to um just give us a brief introduction um about yourself um so i'm amizo teagle i am a practicing lawyer in sri lanka um my practice mainly involves uh, public law um particularly on the issue of torture so appearing on behalf of victims of torture um and sort of uh, arbitrary arrest, discrimination are the areas as well. Um, also, broadly family law. So uh, I do assist uh, mainly women with maintenance applications, domestic violence applications, and custody divorce matters. Um, I know they're two very different branches of law, but I do feel there is a um, specific way in which the law needs to be approached in these two areas, and that really uh, is of interest to me and keeps very interested in the work that I do. Apart from uh, the legal practice, I also engage with uh, some of the non-governmental organizations working on human rights issues in Sri Lanka. So uh, also work together with quite a few women's organizations, providing legal assistance, legal advice uh, to victims particularly. Um, Yeah, I think uh, uh, as of late, in terms of advocacy, I've been involved for the last, since about 2016 uh, in an effort to advocate for reform of Muslim personal law in Sri Lanka, which is uh, the Muslim Marriage and Divorce Act, uh, kind of trying to raise uh, the uh, sort of discriminatory aspects and the hardships, difficulties, uh, violence that um, is a res- women face as a result of the act and how it is implemented. Uh, domestic violence amendments to the Domestic Violence Act in Sri Lanka, um, and also regulations around non-governmental organizations. So that's sort of broadly uh, what I do. Wow, that's extremely, extremely impressive. Um, so, um, I mean, so would you would you like to perhaps um, speak on on the twentieth uh, amendment uh, that's before Parliament? I understand that they're going to vote on it shortly or they have voted on it um so this this constitutional amendment was you know proposed by the rajapaksa government um when it came to power in august um so would you like to give us a, perhaps an overview of the, the changes and and what you see um as the challenges this poses right um so in terms of the uh, 20th amendment that was proposed by this government uh, after the parliamentary elections in august 
um, it is uh, an act which uh, proposes several changes to the constitution as it is. Um, and um, so there are very many different arguments to be made about how those clauses affect democracy, rule of law, uh, freedom of expression, things like that. Um, so broadly speaking, I think there were uh, many challenges to many of the articles or the clauses in the proposed uh, act. And um, in terms of minority rights, there are very specific things that I, I would be particularly interested in talking about. Um, the, the constitution that we have in Sri Lanka is from 1978, and it has been amended right now um, 19 times by, by the fact that we are now trying to propose the 20th amendment. So that's very many amendments for a constitution. Um, various political uh, circumstances have required, uh, have sort of uh, caused there to be all these amendments over a period of time. Um, and every time we look at these amendments, I always need to remind myself that the 1978 constitution in itself was not the fairest balance of power, separation of power. Um, because the constitution brought in with a majoritarian government in place uh, and was designed to have a very strong executive president who was also not, uh, whose acts could not be reviewed by courts. So we already had a fairly, a fair amount of imbalance in our 1978 constitution. This particular scheme of changes was when, when read in, in full and collectively, seem to be introducing a series of changes that strengthen the position of the president. So an already strong position was being further strengthened. And oversight over independent commissions and appointments to independent commissions was being whittled down. And I think in that sense, it represented a shift of power in a fairly uh, broad and uh, in an overly broad way towards the office of the president and as a result, the entire executive. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what the 20th amendment represents to me at least. Is there, is there like a lot of um, opposition, I, I suppose, um, to this 20th amendment, not just um, in, in the public space, but in, throughout the legal profession, um, given how uh, sweeping there they are? There has been a fair amount of um, sort of commentary and uh, concern expressed. Uh, the Bar Association itself had uh, a committee appointed and a report published raising serious concerns about the uh, 20th Amendment. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it said something to the effect that if these amendments were to be enacted, citizens will have no option but to take up arms uh, because it, it, it reduces the space for citizens to actually engage with uh, the government in a constructive way. Uh, so from the legal profession, I think the statement or the report by the Bar Association itself is quite, quite a strong one. Um, and there have been a, there has been quite a bit of um, response from um, religious bodies, uh, trade unions, and other organizations, other sort of stakeholders in this conversation. 
I mean, absolutely. Like, I think um, as diaspora, you know, the, the constitutional amendments have certainly been in in the headlines um, around the world. In terms of uh, the, the Gotabaya um, government, is there any other sort of impact that you can, you know, see um, in terms of impingements on the rights of minorities? Is there, is there concern in that regard? Okay. Um, it's, a, it's certainly not a question that I can give a very straightforward answer to because minority concerns have been there throughout. Um, and uh, I think uh, strengthening legislation to uh, sort of ensure or secure uh, minority rights has been uh, something that has been advocated for uh, with various, with, with all of the past governments. Uh, the particular concerns uh, post uh, this particular government coming into power has been the, uh, the, the by government to also uh, rely, or particularly this president, to rely on a militarized uh, approach to use of executive power. Um, I mean, we see this uh, even throughout measures taken in the during the COVID uh, crisis this uh, blurring of lines between what is legal or whether law is being properly appropriately used to respond to the crisis. And the fact that there is no clarity on the legality of measures is of serious concern, particularly I would say to minorities. Militarized response is a very serious concern for minorities because there is a history uh, and an emotion that is attached to a militarized um, uh, military like the presence and, and um, um, actions, right? Um, so I wouldn't say that it's this government or this presidency that raises a concern for minor rights because I think that has always been on the table as something that needs to be addressed. Um, but there are particular aspects of that that raise particular concerns in this, this political context. Um, in, in relation to um, going back to the constitutional amendments, it, so is, is there anything that the international community or the diaspora community um, can, can do to, to maintain the civic space, to maintain the, the, the freedom of speech? So reading up on, on, on the law itself, understanding what the amendments are and what it means to people's lives is a really important part of um, that activism and doing something and taking a stand against things that you feel strongly uh, about. Uh, with partic particularly with the 20th Amendment, uh, I would say the clauses on presidential immunity, which, which uh, says that the president is then uh, immune from fundamental rights actions. And that is one of the key, uh, key means by which minorities in particular uh, are able to challenge executive action and say, this is unfair, this is what has happened to me, this is against my fundamental rights. Uh, the fact that the president, who is the chief of the executive, is immune from his actions being checked, his actions being reviewed, is, uh, is a very serious uh, issue that needs to be spoken about in terms of people's rights, citizens' rights in Sri Lanka.
Um, other issue is about urgent bills. And, and I'm just drawing attention to these two clauses. Um, the urgent bills clause is where government, cabinet of ministers is able to initiate legislation and pass it uh, with, by giving the Supreme Court only 24 hours. And if the president agrees or, or at his discretion, he can make that three days within which the Supreme Court can, has to decide as to whether that piece of legislation is uh, consistent with the constitution or not. And that the mere idea that laws are being enacted, uh, initiated by the cabinet of ministers, not in parliament through this process of discussion where minorities also can participate and raise their concerns and interests. Um, the, the kind of ideas that push this kind of clause is very scary. So I think, and similarly, so looking at the clauses and how they affect people's lives, their daily lives, and I mean, broad questions of questions of uh, rule of law and democracy are certainly arguments to be made, but relating these to how people's lives are actually affected is a really important way of understanding these changes. And when we do oppose uh, acts like the 20th Amendment, we also need to be, I think, internationally also locally to think about what we actually want. So visioning as a country where we want to go, what kinds of laws we want to have. We want laws that are simple, that people can understand. We don't want convoluted uh, legal language laws that govern people. Like basic things like that, so that we can move this country in a direction where we have a sense of what we want to look forward to. I just had a really quick question. Um, sure. Obviously, not from the legal profession, so this is all very this 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 episode of the podcast is very new to me. But I I was just wondering how big is the the anti torture movement in the legal sphere in Sri Lanka? Like, is there is there a lot of lawyers working? Are you in the minority? There are not a lot of lawyers working. Yeah, and is it, is it like is it a sustainable like? Because I think one of the things we talk about in in Australia, and actually something that me and Sambavi have argued about, is how realistic it is in the long term to find that kind of, you know, um, I guess, judgment on the international stage. Um, it's really comforting to know that there are grassroots movements in Sri Lanka, but is there any kind of meaningful way that, you know, we can as diaspora get involved in this movement or is it more just being informed? Um, I think in terms of support, uh, particularly for victims who already face some kind of yep. violation, yep. There, there is a lot of need for support. Yeah. Um, I don't see the lack of it and the difficulties victims face in sustaining. Um, and I'm not just talking about the legal uh, legal case that they may institute because they seek protection in very many different ways uh, and trying to reintegrate, rehabilitate, uh, just get back on their feet after an incident like that. It takes a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but we have nothing in place at the moment that really... Um, looks out for people or assist them in the ways that they want to be assisted in the time that it takes for them to actually move forward and, and, and get back on their feet. Um, so I think assistance is really important and really lacking. Um, and legal cases are just one thing that they do. And I know from experience that legal cases themselves take about five years, six years sometimes to complete. And even more, I've seen cases where it's taken 10, 15. And that in itself drains 
victims. The, mm. Their lives become so revolved around the legal case, which is so unfair because that is just one aspect of their lives where they are looking for justice for what's happened, but it impedes everything else that they are also uh, trying to secure, which is livelihood and security and all of those things. So supports that look at, uh, that assist victims in a, in a in I, I'm, I'm going to say holistic and it sounds like a very broad, vague word, mm-hmm. um, but there are very meaningful things that need to happen that are not happening and they're very isolated. It's something that I see at least. Um, and something about that isolation and building voice so that they see their stories reflected or other people who have gone through similar experiences, who are succeeding in doing things. Um, and that narrative, that public narrative about not uh, alienating victims, you know, there's a, there's a whole narrative about uh, that also the administrative structures used to say, oh, we beat him up because he was a drug addict or he, he had some drugs. But sometimes these are false charges, but we also do not show sympathy sometimes as a, as a community for torture victims simply because someone else has said, has labeled him a criminal or her a criminal. And I think we need, really need to address those public perception issues as well so that people don't get isolated and the system doesn't successfully isolate victims. I think I, I, I did go on a little bit about that, but I do feel very strongly about it. <laughs> mm, I, th- I think like it, it's really interesting to hear that, particularly because I, I guess in the Australian legal context, we don't have... Um, it, it's it's not a, a, a big I, I I suppose issue. Um, yeah. Torture victims. It's it's not really an issue. No that comparison. Comes, yeah. Yeah. It, that exactly. There's not really a, a comparison to. Actually, the there is in the detention center in some ways, right? Yeah. We, we have our own. We have our own um, ongoing issues here, particularly no. in relation to refugees um, and ongoing detention. Very inhumane um, and indefinite detention of asylum seekers and refugees here, but I guess specifically in relation to um, torture victims, um, that is, uh, yeah, just something that is um, very, very much different and... and um, so even from a medical perspective, I think like there is no specific training, at least I have been told that there is no specific training for psychologists, no specific training for uh, um, sort of doctors in, to do as to what to do when you when you're confronted with someone who comes and t- complains to you or tells you about torture, right? So yeah, those, I think, sure. are basics in terms of I- identifying issues and, and those complaints going through to a system. So if we are not listening to people when they come to first responders or, or the first points of seeking assistance, um, then we are not, we've not created a system at all that uh, looks out for them. Yeah, fair. Can I, can I, maybe you've already answered this one, just with kicking off from what you just said, when you keep saying the word support, do you mean financially support or did you mean from an advocacy point of view? What's the. So, I mean, it, it really depends on uh, how it's structured. So organizations that are able to uh, be with the victim long-term and sort of identify because the needs keep changing over a period of time. Um, so that's a different kind of thing. So if, if you identify, when someone comes to you and complains that this has happened, whether that person needs support fighting a case in the, uh, defending himself or herself uh, in a case in the magistrate's court, 
uh, whether they need financial support is a whole other area, whether they need um, uh, counseling or whether they need medical support if they have injuries um, or just even advice on how to get about this thing. Legal, legal support is one aspect. Uh, how they need, may need support could vary. Uh, and that really is up to the organization or individual that's assisting them or seeing them through that needs to identify when, when those needs crop up and how that can be addressed. There are very many issues. Uh, it could be, it, and it, it has ripple effects. Like it, it, it has effects on your relationships with your neighbors, your family, all of those things. So, and it's unique to each individual, I imagine. Um, but in terms of advocacy, I think there is a, there is a broader narrative that definitely needs to be created. And I know organizations who have uh, come together, Sri Lanka, Collective Against Torture, uh, several organizations trying to sort of uh, inform the public conversation on this issue. And they've just started out in terms of sort of publicly putting out information. And I really hope that that's something that catches on as well.